Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala abdillahi wa rasulih. Nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. So we're going to continue, insha'Allah ta'ala, with al-urjusatul mi'iyyah. And we've reached the 44th stanza or line of the poem in which the poet said, ثُمَّ بَنَا مِنْ حَوْلِهِ مَسَاكِنَهِ ثُمَّ أَتَى مِنْ بَعْدُ فِي هَذِي السَّنَةِ أَقَلُّ مِنْ نِصْفِ الَّذِينَ سَافَرُوا إِلَى بِلَادِ الْحُبْشِ حِينَ هَاجَرُوا So after talking about the building of Masjid Quba and the Masjid al-Nabawi, the poet goes on to talk about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam building his dwellings around the masjid and i think all of us know or most of us know especially those of us who have been to medina that the masjid of the prophet وسلم, was very small it's actually smaller than the old masjid that you see inside of when you go to the masjid and nabawi and you go for example towards uh, the the uh, the direction of where the grave is, and you see the uh, the old masjid where all the 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 I mean the whole sh- the whole look of the masjid is completely different. The pillars are different, the decoration is different, the whole thing. That masjid, which is the old masjid, which is tiny in size, it's only just the rauda and then a little bit, is bigger than the masjid was at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And around the masjid, the Prophet ﷺ built his dwellings. But there's something uh, important here. How many dwellings did the Prophet ﷺ build? He didn't build all of the dwellings that he would later need, all of the dwellings that were later there. He only built enough for what he needed at the time. So it wasn't like that he had uh, a revelation that you're going to marry a certain number of women and therefore you're going to need a certain number of dwellings and that he had all of these empty houses that he was just filling up. The Prophet ﷺ built a house for Sauda radiallahu anha and he built a house for Aisha uh, radiallahu anha al Zahabi. Rahimullah Ta'ala said It's not reported that the Prophet ﷺ built nine houses around his masjid Nor do I believe that he would have done so All he did is to build a single house for Sauda Ummul Mu'mineen And then when he was ready to consummate the marriage with Aisha A house for Aisha uh, In the month of Shawwal in the second year after the Hijrah so it seems that he built his houses at different times. And each time that he needed another house, he built it around that land, uh, and around the masjid. And these were extremely basic dwellings. Extremely basic dwellings. The, the, what they were made of was very, very basic. Um, the way that they were made out of the some of the 
you know, the, the components of the date, the date palm tree, and that the, uh, the width of the apartment or the house was extremely small. Some of them, yeah, and so they talk about some of the this talk about some of the measurements of the uh, any of the house. They talk about it being uh, he, uh, here. There is a narration which is narrated by Al Bukhari and Al Adab Al Mufrad from Dawud ibn Qais uh, when he talks about the Hujarat, the houses or the apartments of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He said, and I believe that the width of the house from the door uh, of the hujra until the door of the house was something around six or seven dhira'a. Dhira'a is a forearm. And he said the internal part was around ten. And between seven and eight, uh, any high. The height was between seven and eight. So very, very, very small. You're talking about a very, very small uh, house. And one of the things that tells us how small they were is that Aisha radiallahu anha tells us that when the Prophet would pray the night prayer, he would not have a place for sajda unless he would move her feet out of the way. So there wasn't a space for Aisha to lie and the Prophet to pray. That's how small the the hujurat of the Prophet ﷺ were. Then the poet goes on to talk about the return of some of the people from Al-Habasha. So we learned in the first module that there was a hijra to Al-Habasha. There was actually two hijras to Al-Habasha. And a number of people had traveled to Al-Habasha. And obviously when the Prophet ﷺ was able to establish this state in Medina, it would have been natural for those people to have returned and have come back and traveled to Medina where they could live alongside the Prophet ﷺ. But those who returned in this year, in this first year, were less than half of those who had gone to uh, Al-Habasha It's mentioned that They stayed in the land of Habasha With Al-Najashi In the best of states Because Al-Najashi uh, uh, Of course became Muslim And took care of them And Abdullah ibn Mas'ud uh, Came back to Makkah And when he had reached Makkah He had heard that the Prophet وسلم, Had made hijrah to Medina and so there was approximately 33 men and eight women who at that point returned from Al-Habasha. Uh, and that is obviously less than half of the number who were there, as the poet says. So the people started to return from Al-Habasha and the number of people who returned it at the very beginning and the number of people who came to Medina from Al-Habasha were less than half of the total who were there. The poet then says, وَفِيهِ آخَى أَشْرَفُ الْأَخْيَارِ بَيْنَ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنصَارِ 
in this first year, the Prophet ﷺ made brotherhood between the Muhajireen and between the Ansar. So the Muhajirun, as we know, are those people who came to Medina from outside, most of them from Makkah. They migrated to Medina. And the Ansar were the people from the Muslims who were living in Medina at the time. And we know that when you move to a new place, especially when they had left their wealth and they had, uh, they had left their families, they had left their, you know, their tribal protection that they had and they had moved to a new place where often they didn't have any wealth they didn't have uh, that tribal protection that they would have had uh, and they often had left many of their family behind that there was a need to make the muhajirun feel that they were at home and make them feel comfortable in their new surroundings so one of the things that Allah legislated for the Prophet to do is this making of brotherhood Uh, and uh, Ibn al-Qayyim mentions in Zad al-Ma'ad, he said, then the Prophet ﷺ made brotherhood between the Muhajireen and the Ansar in the house of uh, Anas ibn Malik. He said they were 90 men, half of them from the Muhajireen and half of them from the Ansar. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that it, it, this, or this brotherhood reached the level that they would even inherit from them as if you, like, as if you would when you, uh, yani when, you, when you pass away. They would inherit from them. And this inheritance or this uh, brotherhood that the Prophet ﷺ made between the Muhajireen and between the Ansar, it lasted up until the time of Badr. When Allah Azza wa Jal revealed in Surah Al-Ahzab, وَأُولُوا الْأَرْحَامِ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلَى بِبَعْضٍ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ And the relatives, some of them are more deserving than others in the decree or in the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so then the inheritance returned back to it being, you know, your children inherit from you and your parents inherit from you and so on and so forth. That returned back at the time of Badr. But at this point, there was... The, the person who would inherit from them first and before everyone else was the person that the Prophet ﷺ had made brotherhood uh, between. And Allah tells us in the Quran of the excellent uh, example that the Ansar put forward in welcoming the Muhajireen and taking care of them. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَالَّذِينَ تَبَوَّأُوا الدَّارَ وَالْإِيمَانَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ وَلَا يَجِدُونَ فِي صُدُورِهِمْ حَاجَةً مِمَّا أُوتُوا وَيُؤْثِرُونَ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَلَوْ كَانَ بِهِمْ خَصَاصَةً وَمَنْ يُوْقَشُحَ نَفْسِهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ Allah Azza wa Jal spoke about the, those people who were the Ansar, who were present in Medina before the Muhajireen, that they loved those who made hijrah to them. And they didn't find any, any jealousy or any stinginess in their hearts for what they had been given. 
and they preferred the muhajireen over themselves they did ithar and they preferred the muhajireen over themselves even though they were in need and the ansar were also in need it's not that the ansar were very very rich and the muhajireen came poor and the ansar gave them a little bit of what they had the muhaj the ansar were in need of what they had but even though they needed it they still gave it to the muhajireen and whoever is saved from the from you know the desire of his own self then it is they who are successful and we know the well-known uh, story uh, of uh, that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made brotherhood between Abdurrahman ibn Auf and between Sa'ad ibn al-Rabi' radiyallahu anhuma and that uh, Sa'ad ibn Rabi' al-Ansari said to Abdurrahman ibn Auf that he would offer him half of his family yani, i.e. that he would divorce one of his wives and marry her to him uh, and half of his wealth and Abdurrahman ibn Auf replied to him Barakallahu laka fi ahlika wa malik dullani ala suq he said may Allah bless you in your family and your wealth so he didn't take that from him show me where the marketplace is and so he was able to earn some profit uh, yani from, his, uh, from his trading in the marketplace. Then the poet, he goes on to say, ثُمَّ بَنَا بِابْنِتِ خَيْرِ صَحْبِهِ وَشَرَعَ الْأَذَانَ فَاقْتَدِي بِهِ The poet goes on to talk about the uh, the Prophet ﷺ consummating his marriage with Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Uh, and the poet takes the opinion that this happened in the first year because the poem from now on is going to break the seerah down year by year. So the poet is still talking about the first year. And a number of the scholars of uh, Sirah said that it happened in the second year so it either happened in the first year or it either happened in the second year or close in the, towards the end of the first year and the beginning of the second year and Aisha radiallahu anha she says uh, as is narrated in the Sahihain in Bukhari and Muslim that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married me when I was a girl of six years old so we went to Medina and we stayed in the house of Al-Harith uh, Ibn Khazraj. And then she goes on uh, uh, to talk about the, prophet, the marriage of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to her uh, when she was, uh, she said, and on that day I was a girl of nine years old.
And as we said, this was either in the f end of the first year or the beginning of the second year of the Hijrah. And then he goes on to talk about the Adhan. And that in the same, at the same time, or around the time of the Prophet's marriage to Aisha, radiallahu anha, the Adhan was, uh, the Adhan for the prayer was revealed. And the Adhan for the prayer was revealed in, uh, in stages. When the Muslims came to Medina, as is narrated by, Umar, uh, by Ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, he said, the Muslims, when they came to Medina, they gathered together uh, with regard to the salah, there was no particular call or there was no particular means for gathering the Muslims together for the prayer. So they spoke about this. Some of them said, we should take a bell like the bells of the Christians because you know that the Christians called out for their prayer and still do today call out for their prayer using a bell. They ring the bells of the church. They said, take a bell like the bells of the Christians. And some of them said, take a horn like the horn of the Jews. So the Jews, the Yahud, they used to call for the prayer with a horn. Uh, it doesn't mention or at least uh, exactly how that used to be, but presumably they would blow the horn at the time of the prayer. Umar radiallahu suggested, why don't you send a man to call out the people to the prayer? And the Prophet said, oh Bilal, stand up and call the people to the salah. When this happened, this was not the adhan. This that, that is described in this hadith of Ibn Umar is not the adhan. What it is, is just a call to the prayer, like the call to the prayer of Al-Kusuf, for example. As-salatu jami'ah. The prayer is being established. The prayer is be just the prayer, the prayer. Bilal is going around and just saying, As-salat, salat, salat. Or he's saying, As-salatu jami'ah. The prayer, the prayer is being prayed in congregation. There was not such a thing as, uh, as a specific call to prayer. And that is why in a tabaqat ibn Sa'id narrates from Urwat ibn Zubair and Zayd ibn Astam and Sa'id ibn Musayyib that they said that the people in the time of the Prophet ﷺ before the Adhan, a caller used to cry out, As-salatu jami'ah. The prayer is being prayed in congregation and the people would come together. Then the actual Adhan itself happened through that dream the well-known dream that happened. Which is the dream of Abdullah ibn Zayd radiallahu an, when he said that he was taught in his dream the words of the Adhan. And the dream is a long dream. It has a long story to it. But he was taught the word, the, the conclusion of it is that he was taught the words of the Adhan, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, 
until the end of the Adhan. And when he gave this dream, or when he told this dream to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ said, Inshallah. This is a true dream, Inshallah. And then he, uh, he said to him, فَقُمْ مَعَ بِلَالٍ فَأَلْقِهَا عَلَيْهِ Stand with Bilal and you tell Bilal what to say. And he, you give the words to Bilal and Bilal will call the words out. Because he, uh, فَإِنَّهُ أَنْدَى صَوْتًا مِنْكَ Because his voice is, uh, uh, he has a, a, a clearer or a louder voice than you. And his voice is better for calling people than yours. And it's narrated that the same dream was seen by Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an at the same time and a number of the Sahaba uh, radiallahu anhum. And the poet reminds us of the importance of uh, following the guidance of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam with his statement فَاقْتَدِي بِهِ and he take the guidance of the Prophet ﷺ and follow it, whether it is in the Adhan or in anything else. Now the poet goes on to talk about a new phase or a new uh, experience for the Muslims, and that is the experience of battle. And the poet. Uh, begins by talking about the battles that happened prior to the Battle of Badr or the expeditions because we shouldn't really call them battles since they weren't really, they weren't really battles but they were expeditions and uh, in terms of the seerah there are really two types of expeditions there is a military expedition which the Prophet ﷺ himself went out in and there is a military expedition in which the Prophet ﷺ sent others out, but he himself didn't take part. And there were a number of these before the battle of Badr, which the poet will then go on to talk about. He said, وَغَزْوَةُ الْأَبْوَاءِ بَعْدُ فِي صَفَرِ هَذَا وَفِي الثَّانِيَةِ الْغَزْوُ اشْتَهَرِ إِلَى بُوَاطٍ ثُمَّ بَدْرٍ وَوَجَبْ تحول القبلة في نصف رجب من بعد ذي العشير يا إخواني وفرض شهر الصوم في شعباني So he goes on to talk about the maghazi of the Prophet ﷺ the military expeditions which the Prophet ﷺ led and this is quite a unique feature uh, of the life of the Prophet ﷺ is the large number of battles that he took place in. And that's why it's authentically reported that he said, Ana Nabiyul Malahim. I am the Prophet of battles. Or I'm the Prophet of war. Because the Prophet ﷺ took part in many battles uh, during his uh, during his life. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The number of battles that he took place in is obviously something which is disputed among the scholars of the seerah. But it's something that the the early generations used to take very seriously. 
uh, it's narrated from Muhammad, uh, it's narrated from Ismail ibn Muhammad ibn Sa'id ibn Abi Waqqas, uh, or Rahimahullah ta'ala, that my father used to teach me the battles of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and used to make me enumerate them. And it's narrated from Zain al-Abideen Ali ibn uh, al-Husayn ibn Ali radiyallahu or rahimahullah ta'ala that he said that we used to be taught the battles of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his expeditions like we were taught the surahs from the Quran. So they used to think it to be very important. As for the number, then Al-Bukhari and Muslim narrate from Ishaq al-Sabi'i rahimahullah ta'ala. He said that I said to Zayd ibn Arqam how many battles did the Messenger of Allah وسلم, fight? He said 19. He said, how many did you fight with him? He said 17. Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar goes on to talk about this and he goes on to mention other narrations. He said that it's narrated from Jabir that the number that the Prophet ﷺ took part in was 21. And its chain is authentic. And it's originally narrated in Sahih Muslim. I mean, without the 21 mentioned, but the, the hadith itself is in Sahih Muslim. He said, so if this is correct, then Zayd ibn Arqam missed out two. And he didn't mention two of them. And sometimes that's normal because some of them came very close together. And in fact, they came, some of them came in the same travel the same journey and so often people would consider them to be part of the same to be part of the same uh, the same battle and uh, al-hafidh ibn hajar goes on to say that ibn sa'd mentioned the number as being 27 uh, and this number yani, was also mentioned by Al-Waqidi, who's another famous scholar of the seerah. As for the, the saraya, the ones the Prophet ﷺ didn't take part in, but he sent people out, the number has reached, in some cases, up to 100. It was said, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar mentioned some of the numbers. He said, uh, Ibn Ishaq mentioned them as being 36. And Al-Waqidi mentioned it as being 48. And Ibn al-Jawzi, mentioned it as being 56 uh, and others said 60 and others said 70 and al-hakim in al-iklil mentioned a hundred so again it's said that the hundred is probably combining the ones the prophet took part in and the ones where he sent people out and again there's a lot of a lot of the difference in this number is to do with whether you consider one particular, you know, a, an, a, an army went out and they, they tried to find a caravan, they didn't find it, then they went to another place and they tried, and do you consider that to be two separate expeditions or one expedition? And that's why there's a difference in number. But we know that the Prophet ﷺ sent out a large number, probably somewhere in the region of 40 or 50 battles that he's, or, or, or uh, expeditions that he sent out where he didn't take part, and somewhere in the region of 20 
that he, in which he himself uh, took part. And this is one of the unique, as we said, the unique things about the, the life of the Prophet wasallam, which is the number of battles that he took part in. So the first one that the poet mentions, he says, وَغَزْوَةُ الْأَبْوَاءِ بَعْدُ فِي صَفَرِ غَزْوَةُ الْأَبْوَاءِ He then mentions Buat and he mentions Badr. Yani Ghazwat al Badr, Ghazwat Badr al Ula, the first battle of Badr, not the main battle of Badr, which is sometimes called Ghazwat Badr, al Kubara, the major battle of Badr, but the minor or the smaller battle of Badr, which is also called the battle of Safawan. So let's go through. I thought I'd just drop into the sealed nectar for this one. Uh, because uh, the sealed nectar explains it quite nicely. Uh, so the sealed nectar is obviously, and you can, uh, is a book that you can you can get for yourself a copy of, and you can read uh, one of the the more comprehensive ones available in English. So this is the summary from the sealed nectar of the missions and errands before Ghazwat Badr al-Kubara, before the major battle of Badr. So the first one was a platoon called Saif al-Bahr which was sent in the first year after the Hijrah, led by Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, uh, an, comprising 30 of the Muhajireen, in order to intercept a caravan belonging to Quraysh. It was a caravan of 300 people, because you have to, what you have to understand is all of these battles and all of these expeditions before Badr were all for the purpose of attacking the caravans of Quraysh, more or less, for attacking the caravans of Quraysh, that were traveling between Asham, between the Levant and between Makkah. And so they would pass by Medina and that offered an opportunity for the Muslims to attack them. So this was the first one that is recorded. This is in the first year after the Hijrah uh, and it was known as Saif al-Bahr. Then in Shawwal, uh, there was another uh, expedition which again the Prophet did not take part in and that was sent 60 uh, horsemen from the from the Muhajireen to a place called uh, Batan Rabigh where they met Abu Sufyan at the head of a caravan of 200 men there was arrow shooting but no actual fighting so they actually they actually reached Abu Sufyan and they reached the caravan of 200 people and they shot arrows at each other but there was no there was no actual battle uh, took place. Then in Dhul Qa'dah, again in the first year after the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ sent Sa'id ibn Abi Waqqas with 20 horsemen uh, and after a five-day march they reached the spot the Prophet ﷺ instructed them to go to but they discovered that the camels of Quraysh had left the day before. The fourth one that is mentioned is this one of Al-Abwa and this was in Safar as the poet says, in the second year after the Hijrah. And this is the first one in which the Prophet ﷺ himself set out. And that's why the poet mentions it first of all. Because this is the first one, although it's not the first one that was ever sent, it's the first one in which the Prophet ﷺ himself set out. And he set out at the, at the head of 70 men, most of them from the Muhajireen, to intercept a camel caravan belonging to Quraysh leaving behind Sa'ad ibn Ubadah to dispose of affairs in Medina. 
when he reached a place called Waddan or Al-Abwa between Mecca and Medina, he found that they, or he was not able to find the caravan uh, of camels and he made a, a, a pact uh, with uh, Amr uh, ibn Makhshi al-Damari which, uh, in which he made a, uh, a pact with them yani, while he was there. The second one that the poet mentions is Buat and that again was uh, another one in which the Prophet ﷺ again himself set out. So the first one was Al-Abwa. He said the Prophet ﷺ set out to attack uh, a caravan of, uh, of camels but he didn't find anything. And he went, when he reached the spot that he thought that they were going to be, he found that they were not there. As for the, uh, the uh, events of Buat, this took place in Rabi' al-Awwal in the second year after the Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ at the head of 200 companions marched for Buat to intercept a caravan belonging to Quraysh comprising a hundred uh, of the people of Quraysh. Among them, Umayyah ibn Khalaf and 2,500 camels. When he reached Buat, the caravan had left. So you see here, there's no fighting happening apart from those arrows that were shot by that uh, expedition that went out, which the Prophet ﷺ was not part of. But what we have here is, you see the pattern. The Prophet ﷺ is, is sending people out and he himself is going out in order to attack the caravans of Quraysh. You then have uh, the battle of Safawan or as it is sometimes called the first battle of Badr. And this happened in Rabi'ah Awwal in the second year after the Hijrah that there was a man called Karz ibn Jabir and he with a group of the mushrikeen raided some of the pastures of Medina and stole some of the animals. The Prophet ﷺ with 70 men left Medina to fight the aggressors. He pursued this Karz ibn Jabir until he reached a place called Safawan. I think the correct, in, in, uh, in the sealed nectar it's called Safwan but in the, uh, in the text that I have, it's clearly mentioned that it's Safawan with uh, a fatha on the fa, yani, uh, which was near to Badr. But the Prophet ﷺ was not able to catch up with them. And this invasion became known as the first Badr, the first invasion of Badr or the first, uh, the first uh, expedition to Badr. And Zayd ibn Haritha was the one responsible for uh, the uh, ruling of Medina at that time. Before we go any further, it's worth mentioning uh, some of the other things that the author mentions happened at that time. So he mentions وَغَزْوَةُ الْأَبْوَاءِ بَعْدُ فِي سَفَرْ هَذَا وَفِي الْغَزْوُ So he says that the battle of Abwa or the expedition to Abwa happened in Safar, in the month of Safar. And in the second year, the battles increased. Or the, uh, 
the expeditions increased. And that's because what we see is it was in the first year, there were a handful of times the Prophet sent somebody out or he himself went out to Al Abwa. But it wasn't until the second year after the Hijrah that these expeditions became frequent and became many. Uh, the first of which in that second year, or the most important of which in that second year, was first of all Buat, then Badr. Then the poem, poet mentions the changing of the Qibla, which happened in the middle of Rajab. So sometime after the first invasion at Badr, or the first expedition at Badr, the Qibla changed. So as we know, the Prophet ﷺ was commanded by Allah in the Qur'an to say, قُلْ مَا كُنْتُ مِنَ الرُّسُلِ See, I'm not something new among the messengers. The Prophet ﷺ did not bring a completely new religion. What he did is he brought an update to the religion of Allah that had Allah had revealed to the prophets before him. And because of that, the Prophet ﷺ faced the same Qibla as all of the Prophets before him faced. And that was Bayt al-Maqdis, Jerusalem. Because the Prophet ﷺ is not something new among the Prophets. So he's not allowed to just simply come and on the first day he has his own uh, Qibla and so on and so forth. Rather he was commanded to follow that sunnah of the earlier messengers and to face the qibla of Bayt al-Maqdis in the prayer, to face the direction of Bayt al-Maqdis in the prayer, the direction of Jerusalem. And this troubled the Prophet ﷺ, it was difficult for him because especially living in Medina along with the a large population of the Jews that they used to uh, use this as a means to uh, ridicule Islam and a means to attack the Muslims through it. The fact that you still face our Qibla, you know, you're just copying our prayer direction and so on. And this troubled the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam until Allah azza wa revealed, "Qad nara taqallub wajhika fi al-sama' falanwaliyannaka qiblatan tardaha fawalli wajhaka shatr al-masjid al-haram." That we have seen the turning of your face in the heavens, and in meaning that you are, you are troubled by the direction of your qibla, and we will turn you to a direction that will please you. So turn your face towards Al Masjid Al Haram, and this happened uh, in the middle of the month of Rajab. In the middle of the month of Rajab. Now. Some of you may have been to Medina and may have seen uh, or been to a masjid which is called Masjid Al-Qiblatayn, the masjid of the two qiblas, because you know that the direction of the qibla for Jerusalem is the exact opposite direction to the direction of the qibla for Makkah. So you would literally have to turn 180 degrees. This masjid, according to the stronger narrations, was not the place where the qibla changed. And it's not from the places which are recommended to visit during the time in, during the time you're in Medina. 
everyone visits there and there's no harm to visit from the point of um, historical you know just interest but it's not from the places that are from the sunnah or that are from the established way of the companions and those after them to visit and it's not the place that the qibla changed either so that's two reasons not to go to masjid al-qibla number one it's not something that is established among the sunnah of ziyara of medina and number two it's not the place where the qibla changed in the first place rather it is the masjid of bani salima to whom the prophet ﷺ said diyarakum tuktab atharakum stay in your homes and the reward of walking to the masjid will be written for you but it's not the place where the qibla changed the stronger narration of where the qibla changed is in masjid quba is that the place where the, the the people were praying and they famously changed you know 180 degrees during the prayer was in masjid quba not in masjid the masjid which is now known as masjid al-qiblatayn personally i don't think there's anything wrong in going there from a historical point of view like sometimes you want to see some of the historical places like so you go and see masjid al-qiblatayn this is the place where bani salima used to have their masjid and so on but it's definitely not from the from the ziyara of medina which is any well known which encompasses the the visiting of the masjid of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and shuhada uhud and so on and masjid quba it's not included in that even though for some reason all of the ziyara trips that they do at hajj in, and, and umrah include masjid al-qiblatayn for some strange yani, and unknown reason yani. but it's not the place where the qibla changed the place where the qibla changed is masjid quba Then going back to the battles or the expeditions, the poet talks about Dhil Ushair. Dhil uh, Ushair, this is the seventh uh, expedition that took place before the Battle of Badr, which is the famous Battle of Badr. And it was in uh, Jumad al Ula and Jumad al Akhirah. Uh, in the second year after the Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ went out with between 150 and 200 volunteers and 30 camels, which they rode turn by turn to intercept a caravan of Quraysh. He reached Dhul Ushairah, but the camels had left some days before. There is, a, uh, there is an eighth expedition, but the Prophet ﷺ, and that is called the platoon of a nakhla but the Prophet ﷺ did not take part in that. He sent out uh, Abdullah ibn Jahsh uh, to Nakhla at the head of 12 of the Muhajireen with six camels to, again, uh, the, uh, the aim was to gain knowledge of Quraysh and their, uh, their caravans of camels. But again, that did not lead to any particular uh, fighting. What did happen at, at uh, Nakhla, what happened which was any one of the sort of things that led to the Battle of Badr, 
was that there was that they had uh, the Muslims did engage the non-Muslims there, and those people who went, they uh, they engaged them in fighting, and uh, Amr ibn al-Hadrami was shot dead by an arrow, and two of the uh, people of Quraysh were captured. And obviously, this the, the the issue with this was that it happened in the month of uh, it happened in the month of Rajab, which is one of the sacred months. And it said that this was the reason for the revelation of the ayah: "Yasalunaka an al-shahr al-haram qital fi, kul qital fihi kabir, wa sadun an sabilillahi wa kufun bi, wal masjid al-haram wa ikhraju ahlihi minhu akbaru inda Allah." They ask you concerning fighting in the sacred months because this was an example where the Muslims engaged in some fighting during the sacred months. And Allah said fighting therein is a great transgression. But an even greater transgression with Allah is to prevent mankind from following the way of Allah, to disbelieve in Him and to prevent access to the Masjid Al-Haram and drive out its inhabitants and fitna is worse than killing. This then takes us up to, uh, or takes us to the end of those military expeditions that happened prior to the Battle of Badr. Then the poet, he says, وَالْغَزْوَةُ الْكُبَرَ الَّتِي بِبَدْرِ فِي الصَّوْمِ فِي السَّابِعِ عَشْرِ الشَّهْرِ He talks about the battle of Badr, the great battle of Badr, which took place in the month of Ramadan. And it took place, uh, as it says here, on the 17th of that month. The Battle of Badr is obviously something we should stop at and, uh, and discuss. It's worth noting before that that Allah Azza wa Jal had began to reveal ayat relating to battles and relating to uh, relating to fighting uh, from these uh, ayat that Allah Azza wa Jal revealed is the ayah waqatilu fi sabilillahi alladhina yuqatilunakum wa la ta'adadu inna allaha la yuhibbul mu'tadeen and fight in the way of Allah against those who fought you and do not uh, do not go over the limits. Indeed, Allah does not love those people who go over the limits. And Allah Azza wa Jal revealed, فَإِذَا لَقِيتُمُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا فَضَرْضُ الرِّقَابِ And when you meet those who disbelieve, strike their necks. Uh, and Allah Azza wa Jal uh, revealed some ayat regarding the hypocrites and their attitude towards these ayat that were being revealed regarding fighting in the way of Allah. So for example, Allah revealed, فَإِذَا أُنزِلَتْ سُورَةٌ 
محكمة وذكر فيه القتال رأيت الذين في قلوبهم مرض ينظرون إليك نظر المغشي عليه من الموت when a, when a surah a decisive surah is revealed mentioning fighting you see those people who have a disease in their hearts looking at each other a look of the one who fears that he is going to die or he thinks that he's going to faint from the fear of death so when we talk about the battle of badr we first of all have to talk about the reason why the battle of badr happened what were what was the or what were the factors that led to the battle of badr we talked about all of these military expeditions that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam went out on or sent people out on from them was uh, this uh, expedition of al-ushayrah the al-ushayrah at this point two things happen two things happen really the first thing is quraish realize that the muslims are a threat to their caravans this is the first thing because this has now happened numerous times and there have been some skirmishes and yes they've been on a very small scale there were a couple of people captured one or two people were killed some arrows were shot but it's becoming increasingly obvious that the muslims are not going to stop until they take one of these caravans and the second thing is that the muslims realize how vulnerable and how much wealth is available to them when they or if they are able to capture some of these caravans so you have these caravans coming back and forward with all of these camels to we hear 2500 camels 50000 gold dinars only 40 men guarding it Quraysh were not set up to protect their caravans from from a big attack. And the Muslims at this point did not have uh, they did not have a lot in terms of military ability in terms of the uh, the equipment that they had. it said that when they went out for the caravan that led to the battle of badr the muslim army was made up of around about 300 men around about 80 of whom were from the muhajirin and the rest from the ansar and they had only two horses one of them belonged to az-zubair ibn al-awwam and one of them belonged to al-miqdad ibn al-aswad al-kindi and 70 camels So you can imagine they don't have a lot. They have a couple of horses and a few camels and the camels they used to do one between three. So there would be two or three men and they would share a camel. And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam himself shared a camel with uh, Ali radhiyallahu an and uh, another one of the companions. 
the Prophet ﷺ had headed out on this battle, this battle which preceded the Battle of Badr, with the intention of attacking the caravan again. So they were not intending to have a big fight with Quraysh. They were not intending to have a, 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 a battle like the Battle of Badr. But what they were intending to do is the Prophet ﷺ was intending again to use these 300 or so men to attack the caravan and to take back some of the wealth that was taken from them when they left Makkah. And the Prophet ﷺ reached around the area of Badr expecting that the caravan of Abu Sufyan was going to go past. Now Abu Sufyan, as we said, the second thing that led up to the Battle of Badr is that Quraysh became increasingly aware that they were under threat. And Abu Sufyan at this point realizes that the Muslims are going to attack the caravan. He had a scout uh, or he had some people who were looking at the route. And when he realized Abu Sufyan was able to divert his caravan away from the Muslims. And at this point, Abu Sufyan sent a man back to Makkah to gain or to get help from Quraysh. Because Abu Sufyan must have realized by this point that this is now an inevitable situation. At one point or another, they're going to get attacked. And we need to deal with this and we need to kind of cut off the Muslims before they start attacking our caravans and actually get hold of something. So Abu Sufyan did two things. The first thing that he did is to divert his own caravan away from the Muslims so that he was able to avoid the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. And in that there is a lesson for you, which is that in all of these expeditions and battles, we see the Prophet ﷺ taking or you know taking the asbab, doing the things that need to be done in order to get hold of his enemies. And it's not driven by, it's not like Allah is revealing to him, you need to stand here and you need to do this and your enemy is going to come through this gap. The Prophet is doing the worldly means in order to achieve the aim that he wants. And that is an evidence that the Prophet does not know the ghaib. Because how many times did the Prophet set out and he didn't get the caravan? He wasn't able to find them or he went and the camels had left. Because he's doing what he is able to do. And that is an important lesson for us. And as Muslims, we need to take that on board. That despite having the help of Allah Azza wa Jal, you have to still do the asbab. You have to still do the causes that allow things to happen. It's not that the Prophet sat down and said, Allah will reveal to me when to strike and what to do. The Prophet consulted his companions and he went out with an army. He missed them. Then he went out with another army. He missed them. Then he went out with an army and Abu Sufyan went the other way. So he's doing the normal uh, sort of means and methods in order to be able to achieve his aims. And Abu Sufyan realized that even if he misses the Prophet ﷺ this time, he's not going to miss him the next time. Because it's just becoming, it's becoming greater and greater. And the number of people setting out from Medina are getting bigger. And at some point, they're going to get them. So Abu Sufyan sends a, a rapid messenger 
to, to ride very, very fast back to Mecca and to get the help of Quraysh. It's said that when that messenger arrived in, uh, at the Kaaba, he cut his, the ears from his camel, threw his saddle upside down and ripped off the upper part of his clothing in order to show Quraysh how desperate the situation was. And this is the kind of thing they used to do, you know, when they wanted to like emphasize, they wouldn't kind of ride up and say, you know, emergency, emergency, they would do things like rip their clothing and, you know, strike their cheeks and, you know, cut their animals and jump up and down in order that Quraysh realized that this is a really serious issue. And Quraysh, by this time, have decided that they're going to, uh, they're gonna set out Ideally, their first aim was to save Abu Sufyan and his caravan and their money. That was their main aim. And their second aim was to deal a blow to the Muslims uh, in Medina. When they set out, almost all of Quraysh set out, and they set out with around about 1,300 soldiers. However, when they realized or when the message came to them from Abu Sufyan that he had escaped, the army of Quraysh split in two. A number of them proceeded to Badr on the idea that they, would, they still needed to deal a blow to the Muslims. They still needed to stop this from happening again. And a group of them returned back to, to Mecca saying that there was no need to fight because Abu Sufyan, the, the main reason that they had left was to defend Abu Sufyan's caravan. And Abu Sufyan had escaped. So when they received the message from Abu Sufyan, a number of people uh, were able to return home. However, Abu Jahl stoked up the army and he kind of, uh, he kept around about a thousand soldiers who reached the area of Badr. The Prophet وسلم, another lesson that we take from the Battle of Badr is that he sought the advice of his companions. The Prophet وسلم, didn't simply go ahead in the Battle of Badr and camp where he wanted and strategize what he wanted. He sought the advice of his companions numerous times during the Battle of Badr, both before and after the battle. He sought their advice about where to camp the army and the Muslims ended up camping in an area where they controlled the water. They controlled the water well. And they were also, uh, he also sought their advice about fighting. Because his agreement with the Ansar was not to fight Quraysh. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ asked the Ansar if they would be willing to fight. It's important we realize that Badr was a voluntary expedition. It wasn't something where the Prophet made it obligatory for everyone to go. Instead, the Prophet allowed whoever wanted to go to go and whoever wanted to stay to stay. In the first place, they didn't expect that it was going to be a big battle. And the other issue was that the Ansar, who were the majority of the army, the Prophet did not have an agreement with them to fight Quraysh. 
And Sa'd ibn Mu'adh was the one who stood up and said, uh, or he gave his pledge of obedience that he would fight and that the Ansar would fight uh, along with him. There is so much to say. In fact, the Battle of Badr, it's, the difficulty is to decide what to say and what not to say. We have so little time, subhanAllah. Uh, but some of the important lessons that we have, we know that the Prophet wasallam, he and Abu Bakr spent the night making dua for the Muslims, for Allah to send his victory upon the Muslims because they were a very small number. Remember, the Muslims are somewhere around 300. They're poorly equipped versus a fully equipped army from Quraysh which has a thousand people in it. It's also narrated that Abu Jahl was praying for victory that night. That while the Prophet ﷺ was praying, Abu Jahl also prayed for victory. Because still Quraysh at this point, you know, they still you know, they believe that they've been wronged, you know, that these Muslims have come and they've changed the religion of their forefathers and they have, uh, you know, cut off from their relatives and they have left the city and they've done so on and so forth. And it's said that this is the reason about which it was revealed, that while you are asking Allah for victory, Allah has given victory, but not victory to Quraysh, victory to the Muslims. It's also mentioning, it's also worth uh, mentioning uh, an event which happened or the, uh, the duels that began. Because this is also important in understanding the battle of Uhud. So usually these battles would start with a duel. The way the battle of Badr started was from a, a mushrik whose name was Al-Aswad ibn Abd al-Asad al-Makhzumi. And he had sworn by Allah and Al-Uzza, the gods of Quraysh, that he was going to drink from the water basin of the Muslims. Yani, I'm going to drink from the, the well that the Muslims are next to, otherwise I'm going to die trying. And he... Uh, he had sworn this oath by Allah and Al-Uzza, he went out and he, he was the one who started the, the fighting and it was Hamza who killed him. When the battle started, the battle started with duels where the people wrestle each other and fight each other and one against one and the, the army, the two armies are watching. When this happened, an interesting thing happened. The first people to stand forward for the Muslims were the Ansar. And it shows you the, the dynamic of the situation that the Ansar came forward to fight against the, the Mushrikeen from Quraysh. And the Mushrikeen from Quraysh said to them, we don't want anything wrong, we have nothing against you. They said to them, we have nothing against you. It's our cousins that we want. So they're saying to the Ansar, that just go home. Just go home, you know, don't worry, we won't fight you, we won't attack Medina. All we want you to do is just take your army and leave. 
we didn't come here for you and we don't want to fight you. So they're trying to make like a, they're trying to split the Muslim army in two. And they're trying to make a, a kind of a, a, a side agreement with the Ansar by saying to them that don't worry, we don't want you, it's not you we're after, we came for the heads of our cousins. Meaning we came from the Muhajirun, we came for the Muslims, we came for the Prophet for the people from Bani Hashim. We didn't come for, for the Ansar. But the Ansar stood with them. However, the Prophet answered Quraysh in this. And he commanded that the Ansar come back and that the Muhajireen come forward for the duel. And what happened was, uh, there was uh, Utbah ibn Rabi'ah, his brother Shayba and his son Al-Walid ibn Utbah. And this is one of the major reasons for the battle of Uhud, that the likes of these, you know, these people came forward from Quraysh. And what happened was Hamza radiallahu an and Ali uh, and Ubaidah ibn al-Harith went forward to, to fight against them. And the Muslims won. And that was a very surprising uh, incident. Because in this case, it was not expected yet. It was not expected that the Muslims would win so decisively. The jewels were rapid. Hamza killed Shaiba and Ali killed Al-Walid. And Ubaidah killed uh, Utbah. Although Ubaidah was injured and he later died from that injury. Uh, it said that he died about five days later from that injury. The battle then started and Allah Azza wa Jal aided the Muslims with the angels. As Allah Azza wa Jal said, Inni mumiddukum bi alfin min al-malaikati murdifin. Indeed, I will help you with a thousand of the angels, each one behind the other. And it's narrated from the miracles that are narrated in the battle of Badr. Is that the angels would kill some of the mushrikeen. And even some of the mushrikeen were captured by angels. It's narrated that one of the mushrikeen was looking for the man who captured him. When he was captured uh, and he was imprisoned and taken back, he said, I cannot see the person who captured me here. The person who captured me was a beautiful and very handsome man. And, it was, and uh, one of the Ansar came and said, O Messenger of Allah, I was the one who captured him. And the Prophet ﷺ informed him that it was an angel. That some of the angels captured some of the people, uh, some of the mushrikeen in the battle of Badr. And many of them uh, killed uh, some of the mushrikeen as well. As for Iblis, Iblis ran away from the battlefield, as we know. Uh, he said, Inni ara ma la tarawn, inni akhafullah. And this is one of the strangest things to hear. And you hear Iblis say, I see what you do not see, I'm scared of Allah. And he ran away. This is after Iblis was the one pushing them forward. Because originally Quraysh were worried that another tribe was going to attack them from behind. And Iblis came in the form of one of their tribal leaders and encouraged them that nothing will happen to you, nothing will happen to you, go forward. 
And as soon as Iblis saw the angels coming in ranks, Iblis said, Inni ara ma la taraun, inni akhafullah. I see what you do not see, I'm scared of Allah. And Iblis ran away from the battle. It's also worth talking about in the Battle of Badr, the death of Abu Jahl, because that was, of course, one of another major reason why the, uh, the Battle of Uhud happened. All of these major figures, the likes of Al-Walid ibn Utbah, you know that they, some people lost five, six, you know, huge numbers of their family. Some people, it was an entire generation of people that were lost but for Quraysh in the Battle of Badr, like this example of the, the three duels that happened in the beginning with Utbah ibn Rabi'ah and Al-Walid ibn Utbah, that it was, it was uh, Utbah ibn Rabi'ah and his brother and his son. All of them were killed. And this was a huge blow to Quraysh. This isn't just like you lost one or two people and one or two people got captured. Your leaders got captured. You have entire generations of people wiped out in that battle. So that was another major reason. And of course, among them was Abu Jahl. And it's mentioned that Abu Jahl was killed by two young boys. And these two young boys entered the battle with the intention of killing Abu Jahl. And they went back to the Prophet ﷺ, these two young boys who were very inexperienced in fighting, they went back to the Prophet ﷺ, arguing among each other which one of them killed Abu Jahl. And it's narrated that both of them did. But the spoils of Abu Jahl were given to Mu'adh ibn Amr ibn al-Jamuh because the other uh, younger boy was killed in the course of the same battle. And the one who found Abu Jahl was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Uh, he found him still alive uh, and, uh, and Abu Jahl yani, at that point died in the presence of Ibn Mas'ud and of course the Prophet sallam, said this was the Fir'aun of this Ummah so you have Abu Jahl who was killed you have famous uh, leaders of Quraysh that are killed and many of them are captured it said 70 of them were killed and 70 of them approximately were captured the capturing of the prisoners of Badr is another important, uh, another important point to mention. The, the, the prisoners being who were captured. The Prophet ﷺ sought the advice of the Muslims about what to do with the prisoners. And of course, the advice that was given by Abu Bakr was to ransom them because they were uh, wealthy uh, Quraysh was wealthy and the Muslims were in need of money. And the advice of Umar uh, عن, was to kill them in order to send a statement to Quraysh that the Muslims were serious and about and that they were now a power in the land and that they, the Muslims were to be taken seriously. And then it was revealed uh, in the Quran that the Prophet 
it's not for the Prophet to have prisoners until you cause a great slaughter in the land. And Allah allowed them what they had. It's mentioned that they, were, uh, they, they used to free them for either 4,000 uh, dirham or 1,000 dirham, depending on whether their family were rich or poor. And those who were not able to, uh, those who were not able to pay that were asked to teach 10 people from the people of Medina or 10 children from the children of Medina how to, uh, how to read and write. And from the uh, rulings that were yani, brought out in this battle is the ruling of Al-Anfal, the ruling of the spoils of war. The entire surah, Surah Al-Anfal, was revealed around the time of the Battle of Badr. يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْأَنْفَالِ قُلِ الْأَنْفَالُ لِلَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ So this issue of the, the, uh, the spoils of war and the spreading of the spoils of war, the Prophet ﷺ took one-fifth and the rest was divided out among uh, the Muslims. As we said, there's a lot of uh, aspects of the Battle of Badr, really it needs its own lecture, but we're just touching upon some of the most important, uh, some of the most important points in relation to it. The poet, he goes on to say, وَوَجَبَتْ فِيهِ زَكَاتُ الْفِطْرِ مِنْ بَعْدِ بَدْرٍ بِلَيَالٍ عَشْرِ He said, Zakatul Fitr was also made obligatory ten nights after the end of the Battle of Badr. So the first time that Zakatul Fitr became obligatory for the Muslims, and that is a sa' uh, uh, of uh, the food, the staple food of the country. And it was obligatory upon the old and the young upon the women and the men, upon the free and upon the slaves. All of them had to pay zakat al-fitr as we know. And that was at the end of the month of Ramadan because we said that the battle of Badr took place on the 17th of the month of Ramadan and this took place around about the 27th of the month of Ramadan. That is zakat al-fitr. Ibn Jarir Al-Tabari rahimullah ta'ala said in the second year the people were commanded to give zakat al-fitr and it's said that this happened when the Prophet ﷺ gave a khutbah one day or two days before Eid al-Fitr so it would have been around about the 27th night there or thereabouts The poet, the poet, he then says, وَفِي زَكَاتِ الْمَالِ خُلْفٌ فَدْرِ He said, as for the zakah of wealth, there is a disagreement among the scholars as to when zakah 
the zakah of wealth, not zakatul fitr, but the regular zakah that is one of the pillars of Islam. When was this revealed? Uh, and many of them said that it was in the second year. Yani many of them said that the zakah was revealed around about the same time, zakatul mal. And there's no doubt that one of the outcomes of Badr is that the Muslims got money. They never had, they, they got spoils of war and they, they were in a better financial situation than they were before. So it makes sense that Zakat al-Mal should have been revealed or uh, was revealed around about that time, although there is a disagreement among the scholars uh, regarding this. The poet, he said, وَفِي زَكَاتِ الْمَالِ خُلْفٌ فَدْرِي وَمَا تَتِبْنَةُ النَّبِيِّ and the daughter of the Prophet وسلم, passed away. Ruqayyatun qabla ruju'is safar. Ruqayyatun qabla ruju'is safari. Zawjatu Uthmana wa Ursu Tuhri. Fatimatin ala Ali al Qadri wa aslam al Abbasu ba'd al Asri. So there are a number of things that the poet mentions now as happening. The first one is the death of the uh, daughter of the Prophet, Ruqayya. And in this, there is a well known uh, event that Uthman an, did not take place in the Battle of Badr because Ruqayyah was sick. Uh, his wife, she was sick. And the Prophet وسلم, in the first place we said did not make participation in the Battle of Badr obligatory. In the first place there wasn't even supposed to be a battle to start with. And the Prophet وسلم, made going out to Badr an optional optional deed. Whoever wants to go can go and whoever wants to stay can stay. And Uthman wanted to go, but the Prophet ﷺ commanded Uthman to stay and look after Ruqayya. Before the army returned from Badr, Ruqayya passed away radiallahu anha. And from the any, uh, worthwhile points of noting in this as well, is that the Prophet ﷺ gave Uthman a share of the spoils of war in the Battle of Badr. That's also worth noting, that the Prophet ﷺ gave Uthman a share of the spoils of war because Uthman wanted to take part in the Battle of Badr, but the Prophet ﷺ had told him to remain and to... Uh, uh, to uh, look after Ruqayya and after she had passed away the Prophet when he came back he gave Uthman عن, a share of the spoils of war also after the battle of Badr was the marriage of Fatima to Ali bin Abi Talib
And from the evidence that this happened after the Battle of Badr is what is narrated in Bukhari and Muslim from Ali radiallahu anhu that he said that I had a she-camel which I had gained from the spoils of war in the Battle of Badr. And that the Prophet sallallahu had given it to him from the, from the hummus, from the share that the Prophet sallallahu had taken. And also from the events that happened was the Islam of Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, after he was from, an, from, a group, from the group of the people who were captured in the uh, battle of Badr. And the scholars differ over when he became Muslim. It's said that he became Muslim immediately after being captured, as the poet says. And it said that he had become Muslim before that and that he had simply joined the army of the Mushrikeen in all, uh, he was like compelled or forced to join the army of the Mushrikeen and that he hid his Islam and this is uh, supported by what is narrated by Imam Ahmad uh, that, that Al-Abbas said I was a Muslim before that but they forced me to take part so this disagreement is a disagreement over uh, it's a disagreement over whether Al-Abbas was Muslim before the Battle of Badr or after. The well-known kind of story is that Al-Abbas became Muslim after he was captured as a prisoner in the Battle of Badr. But there is some evidence that he became Muslim before that, but he simply was forced to take part in the battle by uh, Quraysh and that he actually uh, had, was hiding his Islam and then looking for an opportunity to join the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The poet then goes on to say, Banu Qaynuqar were a tribe from the tribe from the three tribes of the Jews that were in Medina when the Prophet وسلم, made hijrah to it. And there was an, uh, an agreement between the Prophet وسلم, and between them there was a pledge or there was a contract between them. And this had been written down. And the first tribe to break that promise or to break that pledge was Banu Qaynuqar. So the Prophet وسلم, fought against them after the battle of Badr somewhere like halfway in the month of Shawwal. So the Battle of Badr happened in the month of Ramadan. In the following month, the Prophet ﷺ fought against Banu Qaynuqar because they were the first of the three tribes to betray the pledge that they had made to the Prophet ﷺ and the treaty 
that they had made between them. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam commanded a siege and the siege of them lasted for 15 nights from the middle of the month of Shawwal until the new moon of Dhul Qa'dah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put fear into their hearts. And they were, and finally, they were expelled from, uh, from Medina. And this was after, uh, this, uh, this was after Eid, or after that, sorry, not this was after, but after that, the Prophet ﷺ did his first sacrifice for Eid al-Adha, the first sacrifice of Eid al-Adha. Ibn al-Athir, he said, and in this year, the Prophet ﷺ sacrificed animals in Medina. And the people went out to the Musalla, for Eid. The Prophet ﷺ sacrificed two sheep with his hands, and it said one sheep. So this is the beginning of Eid al-Adha as a uh, as a, a celebration and it's important to note on that topic that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam cancelled all of the ayat all of the days of Eid that were celebrated in Medina prior to or prior to his coming to Medina and these days were not necessarily religious days and this is important because a lot of people get confused about this. That these days were not necessarily religious days. It's narrated that the Ansar had some days in the year in which they used to play. It's not narrated that these days were religious days or that they were days of worshipping idols. They were just particular days in the year where the Ansar used to celebrate and play. And the Prophet ﷺ cancelled those days and replaced them with Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha. And that's really important because it deals with issues like the issue of birthdays and anniversaries and things like that. That people might say, well, it doesn't have a religious connotation. The Prophet ﷺ cancelled all of the days of Eid that were celebrated and he left only Eid al-Fitr and Eid al-Adha. And the first celebration of Eid al-Adha was in this second uh, year uh, after the Hijrah. Then the poet, he goes on and he says
وغزوة السويق ثم قرقرة والغزو في الثالثة المشتهرة So he talks about two expeditions that happened between the Battle of Badr and the Battle of Uhud. The first was Ghazwa Tussawiq. And this was that Abu Sufyan, when he returned from this defeat that happened in the Battle of Badr, he had sworn an oath that he would not wash his head until he took revenge. You see a lot of these oaths in the, in the seerah, I mean, that they would swear oaths by, you know, we heard that the, the, the first person who started the Battle of Badr, he swore an oath by Allah and Al-Uzza that I will, I will, you know, die unless I drink from the water of the Muslims and so on. Uh, he swore an oath that he would not wash until he took revenge. So he took 200 horsemen and he came to Medina from the direction of Najd. Uh, and he came from uh, the eastern direction of uh, Medina. So he came to an area in which the Jews were there, which was known as Al-Urayb, which is a, a, yani, a, a valley which still exists with the same name in Medina. So he stayed with a group of the, the Jews. And they looked after him and they, uh, they, they provided him with food and, uh, food and drink. And at this point, he, he, he set fire to some things, uh, for some of the, uh, the, the date palms in Medina, and he cut down some of the date palms in order to, I need to, to try to get this kind of, uh, need this kind of revenge. For the Muslim, uh, this uh, this revenge against the Muslims. Let me see where it is. And it said that he killed a man from among the Ansar. Then he ran away, or the, the, yani, he ran away, uh, and the people, the Prophet ﷺ, went out in order to catch him. Then the Prophet ﷺ reached uh, a particular uh, place but he returned back realizing that he was not able to get hold of or he was not able to find Abu Sufyan because Abu Sufyan at that point had uh, had, uh, had, uh, had run or had fled What it's mentioned about this battle is that the Prophet ﷺ didn't return from this expedition empty-handed, even though he didn't catch Abu Sufyan. 
Because really what Abu Sufyan wanted to do here was just to cause mischief. So he came with a group of horsemen, so they were able to travel very fast. They came into Medina, they cut down some of the date palms, they set fire to some, and they returned back. But what happened was, as they were running, because once they obviously realized that the Prophet ﷺ was going to come after them, they had left a lot of their, their provisions in place. And they had dropped a lot of provision to lighten their load when they were fleeing from the Prophet ﷺ. They had dropped a lot of their provisions to lighten, uh, to lighten their load. And the Prophet ﷺ was able to recover those uh, provisions and to take them back to the Muslims. As for the battles that took place in the third year after the Hijrah, the author is going to come to those, uh, insha'Allah ta'ala. He said, فِي عَطَفَانَ وَبَنِي سُلَيْمِ وَأُمُّ كُلْثُ مَبْنَةُ الْكَرِيمِ زَوَّجَ عُثْمَانَ بِهَا وَخَصَّهُ ثُمَّ تَزَوَّجَ النَّبِيُّ حَفْصَةُ وَزَيْنَبًا ثُمَّ غَزَى إِلَىٰ أُحُدْ فِي شَهْرِ شَوَّالٍ وَحَمْرَاءِ الْأَسَدِ So the next uh, event that the poet mentions in the seerah is Atafan, i.e. the expedition of Atafan, which is also known as Ghazwat the Amr. This took place in a place which is now known as An-Nukhayl, which is around about 120 kilometers from Medina to the east. And this was in the third year after the Hijrah. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had spent the whole of the month of Safar there. But he returned without finding the enemy. And then likewise after that, uh, Bani Sulaim, which is known as the Ghazwa of Bani Sulaim, the battle or the expedition of Bani Sulaim. And this was after the Prophet ﷺ came back from the battle uh, of, uh, of Badr. He only stayed in Medina for seven nights before he went uh, out seeking Bani Sulaim. So he came to an area of water which was one of the areas of water that they controlled known as Al-Qudr. And the Prophet ﷺ stayed there for three nights. Then he returned uh, to Medina without meeting any resistance. And this was either in the second year or the third year. The poet here mentions the battle of Bani or the expedition of Bani Sulaim as being after or as being along with the... uh, uh, along with the, the expedition of Atafan. And some of the scholars of the seerah said that it was before that, that it was immediately after the battle of Badr. But in any case, it was either in the second or the third year after the Hijrah. Also at this time was the marriage of 
Uthman to Umm Kulthum radiyallahu anhuma. And this is where Uthman radiyallahu an got the name Dhun Nurain. The name Dhun Nurain, the owner of the two lights. Because he married two of the daughters of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. First of all, Ruqayyah and then Umm Kulthum radiyallahu anhum ajma'in. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married Hafsa, the daughter of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anha. Ibn Kathir, he said, then the Prophet ﷺ married Hafsa, the daughter of Umar ibn Khattab, in the third year after the Hijrah. And Al-Bukhari narrates from Abdullah ibn Umar anhuma, that he narrated from Umar ibn Khattab that when the husband of Hafsa who was Khunais uh, ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi radiyallahu ta'ala anhu died in Medina. Umar came to Uthman ibn Affan and he offered Uthman to marry Hafsa because of course Uthman was at that time uh, mourning from the, the death of, uh, of Ruqayyah. And Uthman said to him, I'll think about it. Then he stayed some nights and he met Umar and he said, it appears to me that I'm not going to marry in these days. And Uthman replied back to Umar with some kind of non-committal like, I I'm, not, I'm not really thinking of marrying in these days. Then Umar said, I met with Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. So I said to him, if you wish, I will marry you Hafsa, the daughter of Umar. So Abu Bakr was silent and he did not say anything. And Umar said, I felt something in my heart against uh, Uthman. Yani I felt something like, why is it that, you know, why is everyone refusing to marry Hafsa? What is the, mar what is the matter with Hafsa? He said, then I waited some nights. Then the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked for her hand in marriage and I married her to him. And Abu Bakr met me and said, maybe you found something in your heart against me when you offered me to marry Hafsa and I didn't say anything back to you. Umar said, I said back to him, yes. Abu Bakr said, the only thing that prevented me from saying something is that I knew that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had mentioned her and I did not want to expose the secret of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam so I left, uh, and if the Messenger of Allah وسلم, had left her, I would have married her. And the Prophet وسلم, after Hafsa, married uh, Zainab Mti Khuzayma al-Hilaliyah anha, as Ibn Ishaq said, then the Prophet وسلم, after Hafsa married Zainab Natal Khuzayma who was known as Ummul Masakin, the mother of the, the poor. She was before that married to Al Husayn ibn Al Harith or possibly his brother Al Tufayl ibn Al Harith, 
bin Abdul Muttalib, bin Abdi Manaf. And he died in Medina. And she was the first of the wives of the Prophet wasallam to uh, pass away. And she was the earliest one after, of course, the death of Khadija radiallahu anha. She was the earliest of them to pass away. And then we come to the battle of Uhud, and that needs a long uh, discussion, inshallah ta'ala, uh, next week. So we're getting through, alhamdulillah, uh, and it's difficult to choose what to, or it's difficult to choose what to, what to mention from, the, any, from all of these events in the seerah. But what I would recommend for you to do is either this week or either whenever you get time after the course finishes, to go through a more comprehensive discussion of the seerah, like the sealed nectar or something like that, and to read through all of these events, inshallah. Because if you do that, they will become clearer than the summarized version that we are giving here, which is just really to kind of cover the major events that the, po the poet mentions. But one of the things that I think is important to note before we finish is you can note that the poet mentions all of the expeditions, even the small expeditions that didn't lead to any fighting. Because the people of Sirah, the scholars of Sirah, gave a great deal of importance to these issues of these expeditions and the battles that, that took place uh, and the ones that the Prophet ﷺ went out in particularly. Not just the ones that he sent out, but the ones that he ﷺ uh, went out in himself. So inshallah ta'ala, that will conclude our sitting for, this, for uh, today, inshallah. There is one announcement that I would like to make before we conclude. And that is that next Friday, not this Friday, but next Friday, there is a very special seminar taking place with Kalima. You know that sometimes we bring speakers from outside. Ustad Talib Alexander is coming uh, and he's doing a seminar on the uh, Islamic household, the Muslim household. The registrations are still open for this and you can register today if you wish. There will be some volunteers from Kalima who will be here to take your registrations, or alternatively, you can register online, but it won't be open for very long. So if any of you do want to register for that, that will take place, inshallah ta'ala, next week. We will still have an essentials class next week, inshallah, um, but we probably won't have a Friday night class. So you'll kind of have to come to the essentials and then go to the, the, the seminar, inshallah. Uh, but we won't have a Friday night class because I think it's too much for everyone to do like essentials and then the seminar and then the Friday night class is too much. But today, inshallah, we will have our Friday night class as normal. Bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.